This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. I'm Jason Kong here as always with Mary Lucas representing Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you doing today? Good. The, it feels like summer. Uh, <laughs> the pool opened. That was exciting. Now we should do a, um, a show on skin cancer maybe. <laughs> I thought you were going to say do a, a, a show on location at no. the pool, which that would also idea. be great. You know, that would be fun. Let's have school outside. I like that idea. <laughs> A little bit harder from a technical standpoint, but now we can use our imagination and make it happen. Well, we've got a good, really good show lined up for today. We're going to be talking about hospice, what it is, what it isn't. There's a lot of misinformation and kind of half-truths when it comes to hospice and just kind of accepted uh, things that really aren't the reality. So we are very pleased to welcome into the studio today, we have Dr. Alyssa Luddy with us, and she is a hospice and palliative care physician. Dr. Luddy, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have Dr. Luddy, and that you all know um, my I talk a lot about my grandfather and, and his last days of life uh, at the hospice home. Dr. Luddy um, was so helpful, and we're so grateful for everything she did for our family and for caring for him. Um, she really helped guide us in some of the most difficult times, but uh, it was very peaceful and um, I'm forever grateful for everything that you've done. Um, you. So I could think of nobody better to come on the show to talk about what is hospice care because you have seen it all and you're also uh, a physician in our hospital now for transitions. Correct. Which yes. is great. Um, so Dr. Lay, let's start with the simple, you sure. know, there's a lot of myths out there and you know, you hear all sorts of things. I'm sure you hear it all at the hospital as well. Mm -hmm. uh, what is hospice care and who is eligible for services? It's a good question. Um, would it be helpful if I started with sort of the difference between hospice and palliative mm. care? Because I feel like that's sometimes a lot easier to yeah, sort of enter would, in. That's a good point. Good um, point. Because oftentimes, so right now I spend my days, um, when I met you initially and mm -hmm. your grandfather, I was covering the hospice home for transitions. And now I spend my days um, inpatient doing palliative care mm -hmm. uh, in consults. Um, so... So palliative care, because I think it's easiest to start with that, and hospice are not the same. Mm -hmm. They're different, similar, but very different key differences. Um, palliative care is really a consult service, so we get called in to add to whatever care the patient is already getting um, and not to take over the care. Mm -hmm. And so we often get called in to see patients in the hospital for usually a few reasons. So one is symptoms. Um, pain, shortness of breath, nausea, constipation, um, sometimes to provide emotional support because it's always difficult to have a loved one in the hospital. But a lot of the times it's to sit down and have a more in-depth conversation with the family and, and sometimes the patient is included if they're able about what's happening with them um, and really what possible treatment paths there are forward and help them decide what makes sense based on their values. Sometimes that path forward might include hospice, mm -hmm. but not always. Um, and so 
Palliative care can become part of someone's overall care at any point in a life-limiting illness. So Mm -hmm. that could be with diagnosis of something like cancer. Um, It could be later in their disease course, uh, but it's it's at any point. So the reason I kind of start with that is then that helps me go to like what hospice is, Mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. hospice is when really people are interested in fully comfort focused care. They Mm -hmm. really have decided that is their main focus of their care and they're not interested in maybe what we call disease directed treatment. So um, things like chemotherapy for cancer Um, and they've wanted to really just have as high quality of days as possible for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Hospice is a team that does take over. They become the primary team Mm -hmm. that takes care of the patient, and that care is provided wherever the patient lives. Mm -hmm. And so, and we can get into a little bit more of the details of what that means. Um, But it's a multidisciplinary team, and there's mainly the nurse is the primary contact for Mm -hmm. the patient. uh, And the the key contact initially. Other members of the team that are very important are social workers, chaplains, home health aides. It's all overseen by a physician, um, but they're, again, their main contact will be that nurse. You know, something that a lot of caregivers and patients are have along the, their journey and whatever that journey looks like is a really close tie with a primary care physician yeah. or a cardiologist in my grandfather's example. Yeah. Is that something that you can keep on if on palliative care and on hospice? And what does that relationship look like with another provider in the mix in those mm. cases? Um, certainly for palliative care, they would remain that primary, you know, part. They would remain in the same role. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, palliative care. Did mm-hmm. I say that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that wouldn't change for when a palliative care has become involved. They, we don't. Again, we're just a, an, an additional consult mm-hmm. for hospice. They certainly can be the provider that if the patient says, "I want it to be my primary care doctor who's my attending," and the primary care doctor agrees, then that's definitely feasible. Um, and it sometimes it happens. I would say. Oftentimes, they choose to pick the hospice medical director or hospice attending to be the physician because they need to be contacted quickly and easily, Mm -hmm. and that can be harder, you Mm -hmm. know, as a primary care doctor. Um, As I know, I was one. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. It's something you don't think about when you are trying to make these decisions, especially in an emergent situation if you're at the hospital. Um, And when you think about going from palliative care to hospice or even if you're in the hospital trying to decide – when is the right time to consider hospice in your trajectory or or what does that look like on timing on hospice versus palliative care? Yeah. So the other, and I think maybe I didn't include this in that first definition of hospice. It's really not only when there's the comfort focus, but also somewhat arbitrary prognosis of six months or less. So that's something that Medicare has kind of picked as the quote unquote line in the sand. Um, And what that means is you have two physicians who agree that this patient has an overall prognosis of six months or less, and they want comfort-focused care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think, I think what, to go back to your, the question you Mm -hmm. just asked me, Mm -hmm. which was like, can you remind me what it was? I'm sorry. At what point in the trajectory, (laughs) no, 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 it's okay. (laughs) At what point in the trajectory is the right time to consider Ah, hospice? So the right time, sorry. The right time would be when both those things make are true for you. Like, mm-hmm. I want my care to be really comfort-focused. And we think someone's kind of near that 
end point of their life. Mm -hmm. I will say a lot of people, unfortunately, in my mind, come onto hospice pretty late Mm -hmm. in that overall trajectory. And I think I think that's a missed opportunity, on to be honest, because I think the care that can be provided by hospice can really just make someone's quality so high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes there's not that opportunity to get that to get the symptoms under control and have them have really good time with their family or friends. Um, so I think when it's even sort of a question of I'm tired of going to the hospital, um, you know. I'm not sure I want to continue chemotherapy. If you're just kind of asking yourself those questions, I think it's worth just exploring it. Mm -hmm. You certainly don't have to make a decision in that moment. I think it's always worth finding out your options. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. I'm reading the book, or I just finished reading the book, When Breath Becomes Air. Mm. And the author is a physician who... Oh, yeah, I read it. (laughs) It's it's intense. Um, But a great book. Wonderful Um, book. He is a physician or was a physician who was battling lung cancer. And he talks at one point in the book about his body not being strong enough to take the treatment anymore. And in this case, yeah. his last days of life were spent with this dreadful disease in the hospital and, yeah. and where he passed. Do you see in there you were just talking about the benefits of starting sooner rather than later. So you see that happen more often than yes, not in your practice? For sure. And that's, you know, and for some people, that's that's OK. Mm-hmm. Um I think what's hard is when you maybe the question wasn't raised early enough or the topic was avoided because different fears within the family and sometimes it's the patient's fear themselves but mm-hmm. um yes I think I think that is hard to see yeah it's it's a challenge because it's hard to know exactly at what point you need to make that decision but I think you know, having the inputs from uh, your care team and making sure that you're uh, understanding the options that are available to you are really important. We're speaking with Dr. Alyssa Luddy. She's a hospice and palliative care physician with Transitions Life Care, and we're going to continue our discussion on all things related to hospice and palliative care right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas and our guest in the studio is Dr. Alyssa Luddy who is a hospice and palliative care physician with Transitions Life Care and we're talking about all things hospice Mary and we've covered a lot of ground so far on you know what hospice is and what palliative care is and um, I know we want to spend some time now talking about the the care team that's involved here. Absolutely. I think that this is a huge benefit of hospice that people don't always understand, especially like Dr. Letty mentioned earlier, and if you're coming on to hospice very late uh, and you're only on for a few days, you don't get to experience the full benefit of what hospice looks like. So Dr. Letty, talk to us a little bit about yeah. what makes up the hospice team and what kind of services are provided in, in that care. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a wonderful team. So 
I think we talked about the nurse and that mm-hmm. it's an, I will say, in my opinion, um, hospice nurses and ICU nurses, in my mind, are the most skilled nurses. Mm-hmm. And hospice nurses are extremely skilled. So they have to be adept at the whole, treating the whole person, um, anything that comes up. Uh, they are the person, they're essentially, they, in my mind, become like a primary care provider mm-hmm. and and look at everything. So they're very skilled nurses, and I think that's not to be underplayed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the entire team, I think in my mind, it's always nice to see a family and a patient get the benefit of the whole team. So social worker, so there's a lot of support that a social worker provides, not just emotionally, but also helping find a family different resources and, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about when the caregiver is overwhelmed and um, helping them think about respite care and sort of just, you know, there's that person who's looking at the emotional health of everyone mm-hmm. involved um, and safety and all of those questions that come up um, for a patient who's getting weaker and having more symptoms and for a caregiver who's doing more mm-hmm. and how is that going and then always there's like the spiritual side and, and I think chaplains also can just provide another layer of emotional support I don't think there needs to to be this idea of like well I'm not religious and it's yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. really not it's not really where they find their strength it's kind of just helping people what helps them through a difficult time and tapping into those skills um, and a chaplain really can help provide that mm-hmm. direction um, home health aid mm-hmm. which I think is a huge help to families that have them come one to two times a week and they help bathe a patient um, provide some hands-on care um, and just sometimes even let the caregiver get a little break from some of that volunteers I think is one I didn't mention before which are huge you know the volunteers are and it's really lovely to see at our hospice how important they are and how present they are Um, I think they're incredible and so they can provide companionship Um, sometimes I think they provide transportation Mm -hmm. you know so volunteers are a huge part Um, yeah and I think I forgot my own discipline but the physicians (laughs) (laughs) Um, and also nurse practitioners, there's actually, you know, advanced care practi- APPs who help provide a lot of the hands-on care, too. They go see patients in the home, and and then the physicians oversee a lot of it. And, um, yeah, so there's – it's an incredible team, actually. Mm-hmm. And so when they're given the opportunity to do everything they can for a patient and their family, that's, I think, what you want to see and see the full benefit. It's very helpful. You know, a lot of the times you hear when talking with someone about hospice of like, oh, I'm not going to go off hospice because I have to stop doing XYZ treatment or I would have to stop taking this medication. Mm -hmm. Is that true? What kind of medications are covered, paid for, because some of them are, um, and supplies as well? You know, a lot of there's a lot of supplies that go into caregiving. And I I think there's a lot of misconceptions about hospice and supplies and medications yeah so um it's a very good question i think you know hospice covers dme so durable medical equipment so things like you know the hospital bed the bedside commode um i'm trying to think of what all the shower chair things Mm -hmm. like that um and then also supplies things that you need to help care for your loved one at home um and so there's a lot of there's a lot covered in that sense 
And then, of course, medications is a big question that comes up a lot. So how that is, so I think, first of all, people get the perception, well, everything is stopped, and then you're put on morphine. And that's, that's certainly not been my experience, nor has it been the goal, um, nor is it the approach. So essentially, you know, we look at sort of what is the primary reason this person's on hospice? What is their essentially what we call their hospice diagnosis, but then there's also, you, there's other diagnoses that they have that are contributing essentially to the overall decline. So all of those medications that are related to all of those diagnoses would be considered covered. So it actually ends up being a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things that, I'm trying to think of an example. So I think, um, blood pressure medications are often continued, mm-hmm. like things like that, because if, you know, if someone has, maybe they're on for an underlying cancer, but they have heart failure, mm-hmm. we'd want to continue medications related to the heart failure because it would cause symptoms to stop it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we would continue things like that. So that's kind of the mindset and how we think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this medication, what is this medication doing for this patient? And... And then also, would this not having this medication cause a lot of symptoms? So that's very helpful. And, and thinking about my grandfather, when we were working with you all on on his uh, symptoms, that was a big thing that came up. Of you know, yeah. he had heart failure, and if stopping one of these things would actually make him more uncomfortable than right. continuing with him on it, um, which was very helpful and in a different way to think about it when you when you're in your mindset. But right. I was I was actually out recently, and um, someone asked where I worked, and I said no, I work at Transitions Life Care, and she said Hospice of Wake County, and I said yes, and um, it can go as you know as a hospice physician talking about your profession can go a couple different ways, and I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of myths out there about what that means, yeah. and um, she immediately told me that she had a, a bad experience, and morphine um, was. Uh, she basically said morphine took my friend's life. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had to stop and pause and and try to correct the situation. But I think that that's something that comes up often. Can you talk to us about the role of morphine? You've touched on it. Yeah. And the care for someone who is on hospice and and what is it really used for? Right. Um, Yeah. And I've had that experience myself. And (laughs) yeah, it's hard. But it's also, as I'm sure you turned like an opportunity to talk about it. Um, and so, yeah, we use morphine and other opioids, so things like dilaudid, oxycodone. Um, those are medications that we use for pain and also for shortness of breath, um, which I think is one of the things that people maybe are not as much aware of that we use it for that. And really we're using it for, we're not giving it unless it's needed, mm-hmm. essentially. Like if someone's not having pain, we're not giving them morphine. If someone's now, that being said, if they have pain that we're controlling with morphine, that means that we kind of keep giving them what's helping them. But it's not started until someone starts having symptoms. Um, th- so that's one thing. We don't start it unless it's needed. And there's always a conversation about what would be the expected effect. So 
if someone's having so much pain, you know, we start at the smallest dose and build up and mm-hmm. see where we are. But the conversation is always around we want to keep them awake and comfortable when they want to be awake, if possible. Mm-hmm. That's not always possible. But that's an ongoing conversation. You know, I think it, it's variable from patient to patient for sure. But open communication around that is really important. Um, but certainly it's not given unless it's needed. Communication is always so important in these situations, and you know it, it can only help. And having an open dialogue and making sure that everyone's on the same page is really key. Dr. Alyssa Luddy, hospice and palliative care physician with Transitions Life Care, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it was a pleasure. We will be back with more. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. Thank you so much for joining us at a different time on a Sunday afternoon. Usually we do these this show Saturday at 4, but because of football, uh, this week and next week we'll be on at a special time. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We're now going to shift focus a little bit here. And, you know, one of the biggest fears that we often hear about and discuss on the show is the fear of death and being in pain. And well, of, of course, many of us would fear those things, but we're going to have a discussion on total pain and what that is. And to have that discussion, we're pleased to welcome in one of our own, and that is Myla Mason. Myla is an educator and nurse with Transitions Life Care. Myla, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. This is such a great topic, and it's something that we hear, as Jason mentioned. You know, my grandfather went right before he went on hospice, was talking to our our family like, I don't want to ever go to the hospital again. I don't want to be a pain. I just want to be comfortable in my home. And and we hear that over and over again, but I don't think we fully understand the concept of pain. And so, Milo, I'm really excited about this conversation today. So maybe we start out with the basics. Can you tell us briefly how you, as a hospice professional, a nurse, an educator, how do you help patients and families deal with their fear of dying painfully? Well, I, I first think it's important for people to understand that uh, pain is very subjective to the person. Um, I might feel or perceive um, pain, physical pain, um, very differently than you, Mary, um, even if it's the exact same, um, you know, etiology, the same thing causing pain. Um, so I think it's very important that we keep that in mind, that it's subjective to the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that we need to keep in mind that physical pain is only one element of pain. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in talking with our patients and their families, um, we need to kind of um, piece out whether it's physical 
or one of these other elements that we consider in the total pain concept being social, psychological, um, or spiritual pain. And so I think we can talk about that a little bit more, but mm-hmm. for the physical pain, we um, ask the patient, you know, what is it that they feel comfortable with? You know, so often we use that zero to 10 scale, mm-hmm. um, and that may or may not be something um, that a patient really understands, but um, we try to get them to tell us what their level of comfort is, where they feel like they can enjoy their day, so to speak, you know, go about their life um, and have a quality of life. So we start with that. We start with goals. What are your goals? And um, and then we work from there to figure out if it's medication or something else that might help them to reach their goals. It's very helpful. If you're already in physical pain while we're, while we're on this topic in physical pain and thinking mm-hmm. about the total pain concept, which you've briefly mentioned, can physical pain manifest into other kinds of pain? And can you dive into a little bit more about what is total pain and do the, all the elements feed into other elements and, and kind of work together to create this total pain concept? Absolutely. Um, so the total pain concept, which was, um, coined, if you will, by Dame Cicely Saunders, who is the um, founder of the modern day hospice, um, an amazing woman. Um, and she she actually tell, tell, tells, excuse me, a great story about a patient that she had. And this really does um, paint the picture um, that her patient was having physical pain in her legs. And then when she was talking to Dame Saunders, she said, but now it seems that all of me is wrong. Um, She said, I could have cried for the medications, but I knew that I mustn't. And the world seemed to be against me and nobody understood. And she went on to say that her husband and son were wonderful, but they were having to stay out of work and they were losing money. Um, and then she said, but it, it feels uh, wonderful to feel safe again. So in that little bit of conversation with Dame Saunders, she came out with physical pain, her back and her legs. She talked about social pain of, of losing money Um, Because there are social implications of that, right? Mm -hmm. And then she talked about um, emotional pain of people not understanding her or feeling shut away like she couldn't ask for the medicine. And then what Dame Saunders perceived as spiritual pain um, when the patient said, it's wonderful to feel safe again. And so that Mm -hmm. safety and security being her... um, spiritual side and and it really does they all play in together so if you are in a a big social struggle you 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 are sick and you've lost um the ability to work and you don't have an income anymore it can absolutely manifest itself in other ways and make your physical pain worse and vice versa if your physical pain is just out of control the rest of you just is probably a mess as well. 
That couldn't be further from the truth. And so can you talk to us more about the role of the hospice team in addressing the total pain of, of someone? Well, when you think about a nurse and a doctor, you oftentimes think about that we focus on that physical pain and we're, we're trying to give medications, right, to alleviate that physical pain. Um, and that is, you know, what we've been trained to do is, is to, to work um, with medications or treatments of other kinds to relieve the suffering of people um, through, those, through those modalities. Mm-hmm. But we're not trained um, in social work or in the spiritual care side of things. And while we, I'm sure, have some element of that because as a nurse, I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty compassionate person and, and what have you, but that's not my forte. So the team that also consists of a social worker, um, a spiritual care person, and even volunteers um, who, and, and CNAs, quite frankly, who all can contribute to the well-being of that patient and their families. Mm. That's very helpful. I, I want to, you just mentioned the family side of it as well. Uh, mm-hmm. how, do, how does a caregiver or a family member recognize some of these different kinds of pain? It's easy to be like, oh, I'm in pain, and you recognize that. That's, that's one thing. But how, what signals should you be looking for, you know, not – every patient or your loved one will come out and just say, I'm, I'm worried about my social pain. Um, you know, that what, what can you be looking for as a caregiver to recognize these kinds of pain? Well, I think it's important for all of us to listen to what the patient is saying, because as you said, they're not going to come straight out and say, I'm worried about my social pain, but they might, um, just in conversation, be saying things that could lead us to know that that's what's bothering them. You know, one of the things, so when my dad was um, in his last days, one of the things he said to me was he didn't want to be a burden and he didn't know if he was good enough to go to heaven. And to Mm -hmm. me, those are those are two very important statements. Um, you know, that I don't want to be a burden is kind of along the psychological or emotional social side of things, you know, and then the, the, I'm not sure if I'm good enough to go to heaven is definitely along the spiritual side of things. So, um, you know, sometimes it's, it, it can be, alleviated or or at least lessened those that suffering that a person is having if if they have a conversation with somebody mm-hmm. um, and suffering and pain aren't the same so mm-hmm. I think that it's important for us to understand that as well 
That's good advice. We're speaking with Myla Mason. Myla is an educator and nurse with Transitions Life Care, and we're discussing the concept of total pain, and we're going to continue our conversation with Myla right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. Good afternoon to you. If you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, be sure to head on over to transitionslifecare.org. Transitionslifecare.org. So many resources available for you online. Also information about job openings. If you're interested in pursuing a career opportunity with Transitions Life Care, be sure to go to transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Myla Mason, and Myla is an educator and nurse with Transitions Life Care, and we're discussing the concept of total pain. And Mary, before the break, we were talking about the concepts of pain and suffering. We often hear these two lumped together, so let's let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah, Myla, can you talk to us about the differences between pain and suffering? Like Jason said, always lumped together, but the more you talk about them, the more I think that they are a little bit different. And you are correct. Um, So they are related, but not necessarily the same. So pain typically would be a physical or emotional pain. And there's typically a physiologic basis behind it. You know, you don't have um, abdominal pain necessarily unless there's something going on in your belly that makes you have that physical pain. Um, Suffering, on the other hand, is more about um, the meaning that we place on that physical or emotional pain that we're experiencing. So, for instance, somebody might say to themselves, this physical pain is because I'm not a good person. You know, I've done something wrong in my life, so now I'm being punished. That's when the suffering comes in. Um, And people can really be drowning in that suffering, thinking that, you know, they've done something wrong, and so all of these bad things are happening to them. It's more prevalent, I would say, when you talk, when you think about a a younger person, a person who we would would say, oh, my gosh, they're too young to to die or to have this, you know, terminal illness. And and sometimes, you know, that where that suffering really um, ramps up, if you will. Interesting. Uh, You know, I never knew those differences. It's very helpful. I think as a caregiver as well, it's very helpful for me to think about. And maybe we can dive in a little bit more there. The hospice team is a great resource. And you've talked about some things we can do for the patient, but they can also be a resource for the other family members and loved ones as well. And coming from the caregiver perspective, I can imagine the sense of helplessness that may 
you know, and caring for their loved one that may be experiencing pain and they're seeing it or hearing it or, or kind of noticing it, it may compel them to visit less frequently, for example. Are there ways that the hospice team can be a better resource for the family members and caregivers as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to know um, for the listeners out there that the patient isn't the only person. When we when we um, engage with a terminally ill person, we look at the family unit as the, the patient, if you will. So yes, there is a, a person who is the terminally ill person, but anybody that they consider their family unit is also who we want to care for. So, um, you know, sometimes our team works actually more with the family than with the, the patient um, who's terminally ill. Um, you know, sometimes our, our terminally ill patient might have dementia and not even perceive that we're even there for them, but we are there for their family members as well. And so as a nurse, one of my main roles is to help guide the family and patient through the physical changes that are going to likely happen as they um, decline. And then our social workers and our spiritual care chaplains and um, even our volunteers and our CNAs are there to provide different kinds of support. So um, conversational support, spiritual support, um, helping family members to get um, maybe advanced directives in order because maybe that wasn't done previously and now they're feeling stress over needing that to be done. And so we help them through all of those things and we're there to listen to them um, and, and work through those distressing elements or, or suffering that they might be having. And the, the earlier we can start that relationship, the better. So if, if we don't get a patient on service until their final days or hours, then we can't really do the best job for that patient and their family. Um, mm. Let's dive in a little. Sense. Yeah, let's dive in a little bit deeper there. You know, this is a very holistic approach to care. It sounds like, and the team, the whole team participating in the care for both the patient and the family. So, if you're referring very late in this pain cycle, it sounds like it could be a crisis. Can you talk to us about a little bit more about the importance of an earlier referral to hospice if you're starting to notice these things? Absolutely. Um, you know, the guidelines. Uh, say that a person um, who re who a doctor feels reasonably has six months or less to live um, is eligible for hospice. That's kind of the broad picture. And if we can engage in the services with those um, folks at that point, then we have, let's say, six months to help that family understand the changes that are going to occur, help them to get their um, affairs or, or paperwork, if you will, in order for, for you know, um, their advanced directives or even help them. You know, oftentimes we're asked about funeral 
you know, to help them with funeral arrangements or anything else like that. So the sooner we can get in there and start building that relationship with them, um, the better. Because people don't always want to open up to you on day one. Sometimes it takes several meetings mm -hmm. with a patient or their families before they feel comfortable with the team to start being more open about their feelings. And if we can, if we can get in there with them earlier, then then that gives them a chance to work through some some emotional or or even physical things that might be going on with them. Um, and while we can't fix necessarily years worth of family problems, it's it's been a beautiful thing for me to be able to see families come together um, and and even sometimes reconcile at end of life. Um, and that's another beautiful gift if if we're able to start that conversation early. Um, then sometimes people can can reach a point of uh, emotional, spiritual, social, and physical um, comfort before they before they pass away or before their loved one passes away. Those are all really great points. It's something that I'm seeing with my grandfather, who's now on services. You know, I'm a huge advocate for hospice, so it's it's something that um, you know was very important to me. That as soon as we realized he could benefit from some of those services, that we put him on. And now I'm seeing the whole team interact with him. You know, he's really built a bond with his aide and his nurse, and um, he's being able. You know, he's taking. They're taking such good care of him holistically, and um, we're being able to do things like we've. Uh, we have a veteran ceremony coming up for him and um, a, a team is coming out and my family is invited and we're all going to, he, he's going to do the pinning and have a little celebration um, for his service. And I think that those are really special things and benefits of hospice um, and the volunteers that are able to come out and, and spend time with them. And I, his quality of life has gotten so much better since we've been on awesome. hospice. And he really is, because we were able to bring him on so much sooner, really is able to benefit from all these services. And I think those were all really good points that you have. And, and Mary just, you know, I can't explain the phenomenon behind it, but sometimes people actually live longer mm -hmm. once they go on to hospice services. Um, and it's not, I would say it's not because we're giving medications that help them to live longer or we're doing anything extraordinary. But I think when a person and when their family um, feel like they are in a good place, um, a safe place and when they um, sometimes we do actually withdraw medications um, but it, it there's something that somehow works together <laughs> and people have actually lived longer on hospice services than than the doctors would have expected so there's something to that as well definitely yeah. Thank you so much, Myla, for coming on the show with us and explaining this topic to us. It was a really fascinating discussion with Myla Mason, who's the educator and nurse at Transitions Life Care. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And thank you for having me. Uh, it was our pleasure. Well, we are just about out of time for today. Please don't forget, head on over to Transitions Life Care 
aginglife.org to learn more about Transitions Life Care. And if you want to catch up on past episodes of Aging Matters, you can go to WPTF.com and click on the podcast button there. And there you can find the Aging Matters section in all episodes of this show. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.